This week on the show, we celebrate 50 years of Unix. We also hunt down Ken's PDP-7 while we're doing that. Uh, there's OpenBSD and OpenSense having new releases available, and we talk about that. Uh, we clarify a little bit what GhostBSD is and what it is not. Then we cover a little bit SSH Shuttle, the VPN over SSH, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. See now, episode 322. Happy birthday, Unix. Uh, recorded for the 30th of October 2019. Hello, I'm Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. So that was my singing voice. Uh, you will probably never hear again. Um, you probably guessed it. Yes, we have headlines. And this is a big headline. It's uh, old enough to drive many, many years. And alcohol is also <laughs> involved in celebrating Unix at 50. Woo! It's almost getting old enough where it maybe shouldn't be driving. <laughs> but still got a while left. Uh, so yes, Unix started it all. Are you ready for the next computing revolution? Uh, so this was um, a celebration at the uh, Murray Hill, New Jersey campus of Bell Labs uh, about the birth of Unix. And they talk, they have a bunch of posts here and there's some of the talk. Uh, in the summer of 1969, computer scientists Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie created the first implementation of Unix with the goal of designing an elegant and economical operating system for a little-used PDB-7 mini-computers that they found in a closet uh, at Bell Labs. Although, remember, the computer was so big it took up the entire closet, but anyway. The modest project, however, would have far-reaching legacy. Unix made large-scale networking of diverse computer systems and the internet practical, uh, and the Unix team went on to develop the C programming language, which brought an unprecedented uh, combination of efficiency and effectiveness to programming, uh, both made computing more portable. Uh, and now today, operating systems like BSD and Unix, uh, the most prominent descendants of Unix, uh, power the vast majority of all servers and uh, elements of Unix are found in most mobile devices as well. Meanwhile, programming extensions like C++ remain one of the most widely used programming languages in use today. Oh, yeah. And I guess this picture is so iconic now for, for Unix. <laughs> this is just classical. Uh, Ken, and, uh, ah, Ken and Dennis, of course, uh, sitting on that computer uh, terminal. Yep. Uh, they also have uh, a little game here, apparently. It says, uh, solve puzzles using Unix pipes. Oh, yes, I saw those. Yep. When you fire that up, it actually shows uh, some commands like cat um, input.txt, and then they added cut with dash D delimiter, some white space. Uh, they chose the delimiter of white space, uh, which field number and index, uh, and you actually get to uh, learn pipes in this little interactive demo, which is really cool. Uh, they also have a link here to the um, Faces of Unix project, uh, which has uh, more stuff. And uh, also they have the uh, Celebrating 50 Years of Unix as a, uh, a long article as well. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff on that page to explore. Oh, wow, the nostalgia is just overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they also have Dennis Ritchie's personal website, uh, a timeline of Unix uh, systems, technological and social events, the rise of C++, uh, the Vintage Computer Federation, which is a non-profit uh, community resource, and uh, lots more. Oh, yeah. There's uh, plenty of stuff, not just for people who have been around that long or from the very early days, but also to teach some of the little younger people how we started computing and uh, Unix is computing history, as I always say in my classes. And so it has been with us for this long time and maybe the next 50 years as well. I'm fairly sure it will. So, yeah. And it's also about the hardware that changed, of course, with it and uh, how the it changed because of the hardware changes and vice versa. And also all the people who made all the ports into different architectures and platforms that's also a big milestone that Unix didn't die with an old platform that's not around anymore. So it got moved to the next thing. And whether it's big or small or embedded, 
huh, that's a history. And if people didn't like the operating system, they would be like, nah, let's start over, do something else. No, apparently it was good enough for people to port it to the next thing. They wanted to have it on the new shiny gadgets. And so this was the success story and is still ongoing. Yeah, there, there are not many other pieces of software that are still in constant use 50 years later. Yeah, some things should just die. <laughs> Obviously, you know, a lot of the software is evolved since then and, and is derivatives and so on, but it is, in the end, still the same uh, concepts. You know, where would we be in computing if we hadn't invented concepts like the pipe? Yeah, that would be very sad. We would write a lot more code. I don't know what computers would look like, but I'm not sure that they would work. Yeah, in, in the same ease of use that is kind of known for... Oh, well, a lot of people think that Unix is kind of not useful for beginners or has claws and teeth. But once you get behind some of the concepts and ideas, you kind of understand and carry this into each other domain that Unix has touched at least. And you can see, ah, this is where this is coming from or that's this concept reappearing again. The thing as a whole, as an operating system, and also the little bits and pieces um, that you see or sometimes don't see, like that are going on behind the scenes or under the hood. And uh, yeah, all these things made Unix great and made it live that long. Uh, and so um, there was a great talk about Unix at 50 in the uh, at EuroBSDCon. Uh, the videos are promised to be only a couple more weeks before we get to see those. Uh, but in the meantime, some of that stuff uh, has ended up on Warner's blog because uh, he actually managed to hunt down uh, footage of not just a PDP-7, but what he makes the case for being the PDP-7. Mm. So over on Warner's blog in an article titled Hunting Down Ken's PDP-7, uh, he says, in his prior blog post, I traced Ken's scrounged PDP-7 uh, that, if you remember the story, uh, belonged to the acoustics department at Bell Labs. And when they were no longer using it, they stuffed it in the closet. And after the Multic project shut down, uh, Ken Thompson and uh, Dennis Ritchie were just wandering around looking for interesting <laughs> stuff and happened to find this PDP-7 uh, in a storage closet and uh, get it up and working. Um, but in Warner's previous post that we covered, he managed to figure out the specific PDP-7 it was, serial number 34, based on some of the unique components it had. You know, it had this uh, second screen that most of them didn't have and so on. Uh, so in this post, uh, Warner says he'll show that we have actual video footage of that specific PDP-7 due to an old film from Bell Labs. Uh, this gives us the, uh, almost a minute of footage of... Uh, the PDV-7 that Ken would later use to create Unix. But it goes on, The Incredible Machine is a Bell Labs film uh, released in 1968 and available on YouTube at the link. It outlines a number of innovative computer things that Bell Labs was doing around audio and visual things with different PDP machines from DEC. Uh, pretty cool, right? Especially because this film features the song Daisy sung by a computer a plot point that would feature heavily in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey, although that plot point was set in 1962 and was based on work done by IBM uh, with the first song sung by a computer. Anyway, he says, I'll concentrate on footage uh, from 9 minutes and 19 seconds to 10 minutes and 31 seconds of the film. This footage talks about making, uh, making computers make music. Um, if you listen to the audio, it sounds quite quaint, although... Uh, you know, when it was made, that was cutting edge. But um, there's a screenshot uh, here from 9 minutes and 34 seconds uh, into that incredible machine video. Uh, from it, we can uh, make the case that we're looking at a PDV-7 uh, hereafter called the Tim PDV-7. Um, the screenshot looks a little boring until we compare it against two photos of PDV-7s from archives. The first one is a photo of a DEC PDV-7 sales uh, catalog that's available online at the uh, uh, URL here. The second uh, photo is from serial number 115 uh, from a machine in Oslo, Norway from the Institute of Physics that's been semi-restored uh, and gained pictures. Warner has annotated these showing, uh, based on this clear photo of the machine, uh, pointing out, all right, there's component number one and there's component number two, etc. Uh, so number one there is the register panel that reports the status uh, 
of an expansion cabinet, which is clearly visible in both the photos uh, and similar places. The control panel, it's clearly the same between these two photos. The control panel is used to examine and modify memory contents of the system, as well as displaying internal registers and so on. Number three points out the paper tape reader, uh, which is option 444B in the catalog. This reader is also visible uh, for about 20 seconds on screen uh, and is the PDB7 name badge. Uh, That's the slot number four there. Uh, Although it's uh, quite obscure in these photos, it's clearly the same component. Uh, So hunting the serial number of this PDB7. So we have found footage of a PDB7 from Bell Labs. That's cool. Uh, Can we push the envelope further and track down which serial number the PDP7 featured in that video might actually be. Uh, let's look at the key features of the machine in the picture and the video above. Option 444B, the paper tape reader, uh, which we see in the video, uh, is there. Option 340 is a display, which we can see at these two timestamps in the video. And then option 370 is a high-speed light pen, um, because before we had invented the mouse, one way that people thought about interacting with computers with a pen that you touch to the screen, move it around. Kind of imagine the um, uh, the classic Nintendo light gun for Duck Hunt, but use the pen on the screen uh, rather than uh, something else. Uh, so if we look at the uh, PDB7 field service list available uh, from this archive here, which is uh, basically a list of all of the different uh, PDB7s, Uh, which itself is an excerpt from a more complete list over at BitSavers, we find that there are two machines that have both that custom display and the light pen. Those are serial numbers 34 and 149. Uh, And we know from Warner's previous research that Ken's machine was the serial number 34 one uh, with all these different options. So how do we decide if the one in the video is actually the Unix PDP-7 rather than just some other PDP-7. If we look at dates, we can see that the SN34 machine was in place early enough to be in this 1968 film with an installation date in 1965. However, serial number uh, 149, the other one that had the same configuration, uh, or similar enough configuration to match the video, appears to have not been installed until 1969, so probably not the one in the video. Uh, However, that's not conclusive. Uh, Other fields are blank, and serial number 148 and 150 both have 1967 dates, meaning it would seem odd for the serial number between those two to get assigned to a machine two years later. It's uh, weakly suggestive, so we need more. We can't uh, eliminate based just on the dates. Uh, We may be able to uh, eliminate the uh, PDB-7 as serial number 149 because the PDB-7 featured in the video has the option 444B paper tape reader and according to this paperwork, uh, serial number 149 doesn't list that uh, in the service log. So based on this, we can exclude that serial number but only weekly because the paper tape readers were common and maybe they used one off a different machine or who knows. Or maybe it just wasn't written down that it was included. So can we make a stronger case? Uh, The service logs show that serial number 149 has an option 550 slash TU55, which is a deck tape uh, drive and controller, while the serial number 34 does not. Ken Thompson has confirmed there was no deck tape, just paper tape on the machine that he used for Unix. Um, If we can confirm this machine doesn't have a deck tape, our case would be strong that it is the original Unix machine. Looking at the footage is hard because it's so dark. Um, Even so, we can see a blank panel over the uh, option 444B paper tape reader uh, shown uh, at this timestamp, although it's hard to be sure. If we look a little bit later, we can't tell. When the color balance is adjusted, you can see the following. So we actually doctored the image to make it clearer. Uh, We can clearly see that the card reader um, from the initial footage uh, appears uh, to have a blank panel above it. There's no uh, telltale circles that would indicate that it had the big wheels of tape. Uh, Single-stepping the video uh, with this enhancement shows no other targets for the tape drive. There's something weird just over the younger gentleman's head, 
but it's not a, a tape drive. Uh, looking at the field log, the deck tape components were serviced in 1969 uh, after the film was made. It's not clear if this was when the part was added or if they were merely repaired or replaced. After studying the field service log for a while, I think we'd bias our data towards replacement rather than installation, especially since there's no other bulk uh, input media like a paper tape listed. So how would you put stuff into that uh, computer? So pulling all this together, we can uh, say we've clearly found that uh, PDV-7. There were only four PDV-7s shipped to AT&T. Only two had the 340 display option clearly seen in the film. Of those two, one had a tape drive and the other had paper tape drive. Uh, we know that Ken, uh, that his machine was the paper tape version. Uh, there's no deck tape seen in the film, uh, but clear evidence of a paper tape reader in the film. It's not known uh, whether either serial number 34 or 149 lived inside Bell Labs, uh, but we know that Ken used a machine that had been cast off from the visual and acoustics department. While the film doesn't list the uh, internal departments that contributed to it, the computer is generating music strongly suggests it's from the visual and acoustics department. Taken together, we can say that these three lines of evidence show us that the PDV-7 featured in this video is the one that went on to birth the Unix. To make history, yeah. Wow, that's a nice analysis of just a video segment that is very short. Um. <laughs> yeah, um, but it really goes to show how it'd be much easier if we remembered to save information like this in history uh, now rather than having to try to reconstruct it 50 years later and having you know some grainy 50-year-old footage and a couple of pictures and people's fuzzy memories of whether the computer used paper tape or magnetic tape. <laughs> yeah. But you know, at the same time, when you're doing it, it might not seem like what you're doing is necessarily history-worthy. <laughs> <laughs> so in 100 years, they're trying to decode our 4K pictures and videos <laughs> that we think is high resolution now. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, definitely a good read. And, uh, yeah, thank you, Warner, for that write-up. And, uh, yeah. And for all that research. And so I highly recommend his talk. Uh, and so when the video comes out, we will be sure to mention it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so raise a glass on Unix. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be alcohol. It can be water or whatever substance you need. And uh, congratulate uh, Unix for its fiftieth birthday, and hopefully many, many more. So it's time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we have the OpenBSD six point six release out. And the first thing that you see when you go to openbsd.org slash 66.html, you see the great artwork for each release, as always. And this one looks like the metal band is in town. Uh, <laughs> yes, so uh, very nice artwork by uh, Natasha Allegri. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, have a ton of things they list. Of course, OpenBSD came out uh, punctual, as always, because uh, that's how they release uh, their uh, latest versions. And... Um, yeah, some interesting updates. Uh, fixed support for AMD 64 machines with more than one terabyte of memory. Uh, lots of updates to the DRM interface, so that's the uh, graphics drivers uh, for Intel and so on. The Octeon platform now uses Clang and so on. Uh, I have disabled GCC and Base for some other platforms like ARM v7 and i386, again serviced by Clang. Um, prevent DH client from repeatedly obtaining a new lease when the... Uh, MTU is given in a lease. So, you know, if you're told that the lease is for this long, you don't need to refresh it more often than that and so on. Uh, allowing non-root users to become the owner of the DRM device uh, when they first open it for running Xorg as not root. Uh, added regular expression support for formats uh, or for the format search, match, and substitute uh, in Tmux. That's cool. And a bunch of other improvements to Tmux. Um, they've unlocked the get R limit and set R limit syscalls, uh, so they can be run on multiple processors concurrently now. And the read and write syscalls are also uh, unlocked and remove the kernel lock from the bridge uh, output fast path so that uh, using OpenBSD to bridge two networks uh, will not be locked uh, on the kernel as much. Oh. They also made their uh, resource limits uh, access be MP safe and the file offset. Um, interface. So the file 9 interface offset access is now MP safe as well. 
as uh, OpenBSD continues its efforts uh, to get everything to be multiprocessor safe. That's not easy. That's why they start with uh, these things and slowly but steadily chip away at other bigger uh, pieces. Also, um, uh, they implemented Linux-compatible ACPI interface and enabled ACPI support code for the Radeon and AMD GPU drivers and implemented backlight support control for the AMD GPU interface. Oh, cool. Uh, And they have a fix for the um, ThinkPad X1 Carbon 7th Gen to make both speakers work, uh, or both sets of speakers work uh, instead of only one at a time. So that's interesting if you have that hardware. Uh, and then lots of other updates, including support for Verdeo 1.0 for PCI devices, uh, improved support for Aetheros uh, chipsets, and uh, lots of other hardware updates, lots of uh, ARM64 hardware updates, including the Ampere EMAG CPU, um, a driver for the SD and MMC controller on the AM Logic uh, SOCs, um, CPU clock control for the all-winner SOCs, uh, temperature sensors for the IMX8M SOCs, and uh, simple random number generator for the AMLogic SOCs, and lots more there. Uh, yeah. Uh, they fixed the ifconfig nwflag command, which has been broken since OpenBSD 6.4, and it added a new stayauth flag, uh, which can be set to ignore dauth frames. Uh, this is useful when DOS frames are being spoofed by an attacker. Uh, basically, an attacker pretending to be the access point and telling your laptop to log off the Wi-Fi. Uh, so there's a way to ignore those now. <laughs> you better. <laughs> uh, definitely good to have these things. Um, they also made some improvements in the IEEE wireless stack improvements. Um, like Alan mentioned, uh, but also generic network stack improvements enable TCP and UDP checksum offloading by default for the IX group of network cards. Uh, these are the Intel ones. Um, yeah, it's the Intel, I think, 10 and 40 gig adapters. Mm-hmm. And they've also added support for Intel SRIOV uh, virtual functions, which basically allows you to take uh, a physical Intel 700 series Ethernet controller and make it appear as multiple devices to the OS. Uh, so that you can then PCI pass through those virtual devices into VMs uh, to have better performance inside virtual machines. Ah. And a bunch of stuff there. Uh, Improvements to their installer, including syspatch and sysupgrade support. Uh, Unveil has now used in uh, 77 userland programs to redact file system access. Um, PS can now show which processes have called Unveil by adding flags to the state field of the process. And it can same thing for pledge. Uh, and you can get a list of the pledges by basically adding uh, the column pledge to PS with the dash O flag, and it'll show you which uh, pledges that application has made. Mm-hmm. A uh, mitigation for Intel's microarchitectural data sampling vulnerability, including the new CPU VERW behavior, uh, if available, or by using the proper sequence from Intel's deep dive doc on the return to user space and enter VMM guest pass and updated the VMM driver, which is their hypervisor, uh, to pass through the MSR bits so that guests can apply these optimizations or optimal mitigations as well. Mm, cool. Uh, they've also introduced the malloc conceal and cialloc conceal, which return memory in pages uh, marked map conceal and then call free zero uh, when you free. So these basically, when you allocate the memory, you uh, set a special flag on it, so the OS will do more to protect it. And when you free that, the OS will automatically zero it for you, uh, which is a very nice API. As opposed to doing something like explicit B0, where you are, at free time, you have to remember, oh, did this contain something sensitive or not? And remember to erase it. Instead, when you allocate memory for the purpose of using it for something secure, you can flag it, and then when you go to free it, the OS knows, oh, this was sensitive, so let me make sure it gets zeroed. Mm, so that takes care of this. Yeah. Yep. Uh, lots of improvements to uh, networking utilities like NTPD, uh, SLACD, ifconfig, SNMPD, BGPD, uh, PFCTL, uh, RPKI client, RelayD, uh, TCP dump, OSF, OSPFD, uh, unwind, IKD, etc. Oh, yeah, that's a long list. And with each OpenBSD release, there's also uh, OpenSMTBD improvements as well as OpenSSH. Yep, and uh, LibreSSL 3.0 came out, and then OpenSSH.1, which we'll talk about in a 
separate story in a minute. Uh, improvements to Mandoc, uh, like slowly start implementing tagging support for uh, Mandoc pages, uh, which is interesting. I have to look into that because it might be quite interesting. Uh, implement the Roth break uh, request to break out of a while loop. Uh, and uh, improvements for mandoc.css to support preferred color scheme, dark, so that uh, in your browser you can say whether you prefer dark themes or light themes on websites, and the page will, CSS will do it automatically for you. And they also have the pre-built uh, packages per architecture. So uh, your AMD64 has about 10,700. Um, ARM64 has about 700 less than that. Uh, I386 is about the same number. MIPS is a uh, little under 8,000, uh, and Spark is about uh, 9,600. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's quite a list. And uh, I think the ARM v7 is still compiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes a while. Uh... And then major updates. Uh, Xenocara is now based on Xorg 7.7 with uh, Xserver 1.20.5 plus a bunch of patches and stuff. Mesa 19.0.8, Xterm 344, etc., uh, Clang is updated to version 8.0.1, GCC 421 and 336, uh, Perl 5.28, uh, NSD 4.22, Unbound 1.9.4, Anchors is 5.7, Binutils 2.17, uh, GDB 6.3, Auk is from August 10th, 2011, um, and then Expat from 2.2.8. There are instructions for each platform on how to install. Uh, how to get the source code and the ports tree and so on. Uh, lots to do. And yes, this is the 47th release of OpenBSD. Yep. Uh, congratulations on that one. And uh, if you are on OpenBSD, update and uh, bless some other devices with a fresh install, maybe. All right. But it's not the only release we have in this episode. We also have OpenSense 19.7.5 is also out for people to get it. And they write in their announcement that hello friends and followers, lots of plugin and ports updates this time with a few minor improvements in all core areas. Behind the scenes, they are starting to migrate the base system to version 12.1, uh, which is supposed to hit the next 20.1 uh, release if all goes well. And uh, you should always stay tuned for more infos in the next month or so. Uh, they have a full patch notes provided. Um, Mm, the first few items, or a couple items more like, are about the system. Uh, they show all swap partitions and system information widgets. Uh, they also flatten the services underscore get in preparation for removal. So this is not going to stay. Uh, the pin syslog and G version uh, to specific package names. So that is um, fixed there. Uh, they also replaced most of the subprocess call use, as well as fix a PHP warning on authentication server pages. Of course, there's, uh, not, it wouldn't be an open sense release if there weren't any firewall changes uh, in the good sense. Uh, they improved the firewall rules, inline toggles. They only allow TCP flags on TCP protocol. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, simplify help text for direction setting. Also good to have that. And make the protocol log summarize uh, or the summaries case insensitive. Yeah, I think the biggest update uh, for end users will be the updates to the plugins. So they have a new version of the Acme client uh, for LibreSSL, a new version of Bind, which will reload Bind on record changes, so that when you make a change, it will notice right away instead of you having to tell it. Um, the ET Pro telemetry has uh, some improvements to work with some of the changes in the base system. They have new versions of FreeRadius uh, F. RR, which is the new open source routing platform thing. Uh, new versions of HAProxy, MailTrail, PostFix, RSpamD. Um, the Sunny Valley uh, plugin now has LibreSSL support, uh, thanks to Sunny Valley Networks. Um, Telegraph is updated. They have some new themes uh, from Team Rebellion, including uh, Cicada and Toucan. Um, Tink, which is uh, T-I-N-C, is a mesh... VPN thing, uh, so they have a plugin for that. Uh, Tor has been updated to 1.8 and adds dormant mode disable options. Uh, and then they have a new version of the VirtualBox plugin. I see. Yeah, so definitely people should check that out and update their firewalls and uh, stay close with their usual stay safe. Yep. Uh, next, we have uh, a post from GhostBSD. 
So Eric over at GhostBSD has done a post here, says dealing with misunderstandings of what GhostBSD is. Uh, he says since the release of the 19.09, uh, which will be the September release of uh, GhostBSD, it is, uh, I've seen a lot of misunderstanding of what GhostBSD is and what the future of GhostBSD will be. GhostBSD is based on TrueOS uh, with FreeBSD version 12 stable with our twist on it. Uh, we will continue to use TrueOS and uh, OpenRC and the packaging system from the base system uh, that gets built from the FreeBSD port tree. GhostBSD is becoming a, a slow-rolling release uh, based on the latest TrueOS with uh, FreeBSD 12 stable and will eventually switch to FreeBSD 13 stable when that gets uh, released, which will be think at the end of 2020 or maybe early in 2021 i think is the timeline for 12 or for 13.0 i forget anyway um they say our official desktop is uh mate the gnome 2 fork or whatever which means uh, that the leading developer of ghostbsd does not officially support running something like xfce community releases are maintained by the community and uh, for the community, the GhostBSD project will provide help to build and to host these community releases. If anyone wants to have a particular desktop supported and is up uh, to doing a bit of the work, then uh, the GhostBSD project is happy to help and uh, deal with the hosting and so on. And uh, they're hoping to see a bunch of these kind of spins of GhostBSD with different desktops. Uh, he says there's some effort on a Plasma 5-based desktop as well. If anyone is interested in helping with XFCE or Plasma 5 or in creating some other community release, uh, we are uh, we welcome your contributions uh, and also just contributions to the GhostBSD-based system or ports and new ports or whatever. Uh, we are most active in our Telegram group when they have a link, uh, but you can also reach us on the GhostBSD forums. Yeah, so that hopefully clears up some confusion that may be uh, flared up here and there. But um, yeah, everything's cool. This corner of the internet. Uh, speaking of the internet, we also have some interesting for you called Shuttle with two S's. Why? Because it's VPN over SSH. Shuttle, SSH, get it? Uh, <laughs> so they start this article or the intro with looking for a lightweight VPN clients but are not ready to spend a monthly recurring amount on a VPN. VPNs can be expensive depending upon the quality of service and amount of privacy you want. A good VPN plan can easily set you back by $10 a month and even that doesn't guarantee you privacy. There is no way to be sure whether the VPN is storing your confidential information and traffic logs or not. Uh, SSH Shuttle, or Shuttle with two S's, is the answer to your problem. It provides VPN over SSH. And in this article, they're going to explore this cheap yet powerful alternative to the expensive VPNs. Uh, and they use open source tools as well, and those you can control uh, your own privacy with. So, uh, in a nutshell, SSH Shuttle, or S Shuttle is an awesome program that allows you to create VPN connections from your local machine to any remote server that you have SSH access on. Uh, the tunnel established over the SSH connection can then be used to route all the traffic from client machine through the remote machine, including all the DNS traffic. So in case you're in an open uh, Wi-Fi, like at the hotel or the train station, then you could um, use this to secure your network without anyone else listening in. Uh, in the bare bones uh, shuttle, SSH shuttle is just a proxy server which runs on the client machine and forwards all the traffic to an SSH tunnel. And since it's open source, it holds quite a lot of major advantages over traditional VPNs. And uh, they have a little bit of uh, ins installation instructions. It's basically available on many systems, including macOS, the Ubuntu, the uh, PIP as well, Arch Linux, uh, as well as the oh, Fedora as well, uh, or for the very pure people who don't have uh, ports for their platform yet. There's also installing from source instructions by just cloning the Git rep repository and uh, running the setup.py uh, command. Then it's setting up your uh, shuttle connection and they have a little uh, demo on their website to demonstrate how it works and what it does. And they have some common options like dash R for remote host name with the optional username and dash V for the both outputs to see what's going on as well as dash dash DNS, which captures all the DNS queries on the client machine and resolves them using the remote machine. And they have a couple of uh, tips for to making it use uh, on a daily basis, much easier by just adding in, if you are on bash, if you're using the bash, you can add a bash RC, then you just type a VPN in the future and you don't have to set up the whole parameters uh, for your connection. 
or it's just a little handy shortcut. Very cool. People who uh, haven't set this up yet uh, should give it a go and try it out and see how it works, especially when they're on the on the. I'm not, I wouldn't say on the run, but on the road. Um, <laughs> so if you're in an insecure network and you just want to make sure that no one's uh, listening in, then give it a try with SSH Shuttle and uh, then your connection is secured in your own little VPN. Okay, a little bit connected to that. Uh, it's OpenSSH 8.1. We kind of uh, talked a little bit about it, but not too much. And it's still worth its own article. Yeah, so the, the portal version is out now. So OpenSSH 8.1 was released on October 9th and is available um, on all the mirrors and is likely to be integrated into your OS pretty soon. Uh, there's first two security vulnerabilities that are fixed in this new version. The SSH, SSHD, SSH add, and SSH keygen commands have an exploitable integer overflow bug found in the private key parsing code for the new XMSS key type. However, this key type is still experimental and support for it is not compiled by default. In fact, there is no user-facing autoconf option which exists to enable this importable SSH. So you'd have to like manually edit some source code to be able to actually compile this into your SSH. So you weren't vulnerable, but uh, thanks to Adam Zabraki uh, from Security Team's SSD program uh, for finding and reporting this bug so that once it is compiled by default, uh, it won't have these vulnerabilities in it. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, SSH, SSHD, and SSH agent add protection for private keys at rest in RAM against uh, speculation and memory side channel attacks like Spectre, Meltdown, uh, RAM bleed, etc. This release encrypts private keys when they're not in use with a symmetric key that is derived from a relatively large pre-key, which consists of random data, uh, currently 16 kilobytes. This way, uh, if memory is leaked while you're not actively doing something in SSH, uh, it will be the encrypted version of the key, not the plain text. There's also one potentially incompatible change in 8.1. Um, so this release includes a number of changes. Uh, in particular, if you're using SSH keygen when acting as a certificate authority and signing certificates with uh, an RSA key, the default uh, is now to use RSA SHA-2512 as the signature algorithm. Uh, certificates signed by RSA keys will therefore be incompatible with OpenSSH versions prior to 7.2 unless you specifically override uh, this by doing you know SSH keygen dash T SSH dash RSA uh, and then dash S to sign it or whatever. So if you're doing the certificate or authority thing and you have some really old SSH clients around still, uh, you'll need to specify that you want the older key because the default is now the newer type, but it won't work with older versions of SSH. Okay, good to know. Uh, so compared to OpenSSH 8.0, this is primarily a bug fix release, so there won't be that many big changes. Uh, a couple of new things, though. Uh, in SSH, you can now use the percent %n um, variable, which will be expanded when you run proxy command strings uh, so that you can pass stuff through that way. In SSH and SSHD, um, this is a big one, if you uh, are setting the host key algorithms in your uh, local config file or in the command line, if you prefix the list of algorithms with the caret symbol, uh, which in regular expressions means starts with, with some algorithms, it will put those at the beginning of the list. This allows you, rather than normally when you set host key algorithm, you saying only accept these types, this allows you to put your preferred type first in the list without changing the default list. Uh, so this says, you know, this way you don't have to propagate the current default in such a way that in the future, if one gets removed from the default, your local config will override it and add it back and that would be bad or whatever, but allows you to say, I prefer using the ED25519 key, so put it at the beginning of the list of algorithms so it will try to use that one first. So that's very nice. Uh, SSH Keygen has added an experimental lightweight signature and verification ability. Signatures may be made using regular SSH keys held on disk or stored in an SSH agent and verified against an authorized keys-like list of allowed keys. Signatures embed a namespace that prevents confusion and attacks between different usage domains like files versus email, etc. The SSH keygen uh, now also can print key comments when extracting a public key from a private key so that uh, 
those get retained. Uh, SSH keygen also now accepts the verbose flag when you're searching for host keys in a known host file. So when you put the, the verbose flag, it will now also print the host's uh, random art signature as well, making it easy to... Uh, when you're just looking at host keys, they're strings of hexadecimal. It can be kind of hard to compare to tell if two are the same. But random art gives you a little square kind of QR code looking thing, but less detail. Um, it makes it very easy as a human to compare uh, two different random arts and tell if they're the same one or not. I've seen this pattern before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they show up in a couple places and they're meant to be easy for a human to compare to. Uh, and so the SSH keygen command can now generate that for each host to make it easier. And then lastly, uh, for all the utilities, uh, now supports PKCS8 as an optional format for storing of private keys to disk. The OpenSSH native key format remains the default, but PKCS8 is a superior format to PEM if interoperability with non-SSH software is required, as it may be uh, less insecure key derivation functions than PEM. Uh, and I imagine that also helps with uh, some of the token type things when you're trying to share your SSH key with uh, YubiKey or something like that. And then they have lots of bug fixes in here. Uh, you can go read that list if you're interested. Uh, and there are also a couple of uh, portability fixes. They fixed uh, SigWinch uh, for Solaris, uh, fixed a typo that prevented detecting specific Linux VRFs. Um, SSHD added a no-op implementation of PAM putEnv to avoid build breakage on platforms where the PAM implementation lacks this functionality, like HPUX. The SFTP server uh, has fixed the Solaris privilege sandbox uh, from preventing the legacy SFTP rename operation from working, uh, which was uh, refusing to allow hard links to files owned by other users. Um, they added the proc underscore pid info based close from uh, for OS X to avoid the need to brute force close all high numbered file descriptors. Uh, SSG in the Linux uh, sepconf BPF sandbox they allow mprotect with uh, prot read, write, or none only. This syscall is used uh, by some hardened heap allocators. Um, SSHD in Linux, SiteConf VPF sandboxes now also allows the S390 specific IOCTL for ECC hardware support. Uh, they've also used the doc man page format. Uh, if the man doc tool is present on the system, previously uh, the configure would not select the doc man page format if man doc was present, but nrof was not. And then lastly, uh, SSHD doesn't install duplicate streams modules on Solaris. Check if streams modules are already installed on a PTY before installing since when compiling, um, it would likely be installed already. This prevents hanging duplicate lines from showing up on the console. Okay, well, that's quite a bunch of changes. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're jumping right into the beastie bits this week. Uh, we have uh, first to say goodbye to the 32 CPU limit in NetBSD uh, ARCH64. Bye-bye. It's better to have more CPUs. Yeah, so the, the CPU limit has been raised. I forget what it was set to now, uh, but the screenshot shows 64 CPUs. That's decent if you have them. Uh, so mm -hmm. if your operating system supports them, then uh, you should make use of each one of them. Uh, definitely good to have that, and uh, especially for AR64, where you can never have enough CPUs. Uh, <laughs> great. Uh, so it says uh, the max is now 256. Ooh, wow. Yeah, as more and more hardware comes out with that, um, it's good to have operating system support can address these CPUs. I see a lot of compiles going <laughs> this way. <laughs> uh, then we have the videos available from VBSDCon 2019, including Alan's and mine. Uh, all of them are there. Um, oh. If you follow the wrong link, uh, it only shows like the first five, but if you click the videos tab there, uh, all the talks uh, from the conference are now available. Plus there's a one minute teaser commercial thing that came out first mm. too. <laughs> but yes, so there's Benedict's talk about replacing Postgres, uh, Colin's talk about software side channel attacks. Uh, Connor's talk about uh, FreeBSD at work. Uh, my explain like on five how ZFS caching works. Sean Webb's uh, talk about hardened BSD. Kurt's talk about uh, the care and feeding of OpenBSD porters. Dexter's talk about ZFS performance across platforms. Uh, Dave's talk about FreeNAS to FreeBSD transitions. John Baldwin's talk about in-kernel TLS framing and encryption. That one's very good. There's a similar topic 
on the one at EuroBSDCon, but it was given by different people and it covers different aspects of it. So I recommend watching both of those, even though you might think they're duplicates. They are not. Uh, Michael Lucas's 20 Years in FreeBSD Jails. Um, great keynote uh, by Paul Vixie, DNS over HTTPS and all of its friends and relations. Highly, highly recommend that. Also, his EuroBSDCon talk on the same topic has very little overlap. It was mostly the same set of slides, although in a different order and skipping different slides because he only had an hour. And his, I think his talk, if we let him, would have been three hours. So I recommend watching that and the Euro version when it comes out. And then finally, um, Aaron's talk about uh, road, road warrior disaster recovery, um, basically how to keep your laptop backed up when you're on the road. I like the quality. I like to also like the angel that they took to the speaker. So it's definitely worth watching, not just self-promotion, but yeah, I think it was very well done from the video crew at BBSDCon. Yep. Uh, and so thanks to Mark Felder and uh, Dan Langill and the rest of the BBSDCon team for making that happen and to VeriSign and the rest of the sponsors uh, for also making it possible. Already looking forward to the next one uh, in two years. All right, uh, then we have another video on YouTube called Browse the Web in the Terminal using W3M. If you have never done this, it's uh, certainly uh, something to see or to experience. If you're like, yeah, the commando, the command line can only do so many things, but now you can add web browsing to it if you have the right uh, software installed, in this case, W3M. And this is the, what the video demonstrates. Uh, then we have a bit of a update or a summary from NetBSD 9 and Google Summer of Code. Uh, this is a slide deck, I think. Uh, I think this is from the Google Summer of Code Mentor Summit. Ah, yes, the results uh, presentation or over the years. So it starts with a uh, brief introduction to what is NetBSD, because obviously uh, Google Summer of Code mentors from other projects might not know what NetBSD is, but they talk about some of their successful projects, including... Uh, kernel fuzzers with syscaller, kernel fuzzers with Triforce ACL, other interesting stuff. All the work that have been done over the years by students went into. And different hardware platforms that NetBSD supports and so on. Uh, the Wine64 um, Summer of Code project, uh, the virtualization stuff with both NVMM and Haxam, the sanitizer work, looking at buffer overflows and integer uh, overflows and uninitialized memory reads and so on. Talking about all the different types of uh, sanitizers on uh, NetBSD, um, building the sanitizers into the compiler stuff, working on the debuggers, the static code analysis, or the looks good to me bot. <laughs> <laughs> Security hardening include Intel CPU bug mitigation and kernel ASLR, uh, graphic support stuff, uh, getting Mesa updated and getting newer DRM graphics drivers, um, file systems like getting ZFS updated and so on. Uh, the NPF new firewall and how that works, uh, and also trying to update NetBSD's uh, Wi-Fi stack to be the FreeBSD Wi-Fi stack, uh, and lots of other improvements. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely having a look at that to see what benefits the Google Summer of Code project brings to NetBSD or to other projects uh, is good to see, and that students also see that their results are included uh, in the in the in the projects that are participating. And if you haven't uh, watched enough videos yet, we have also the BSDCAN 2019 videos list available for you in a nice uh, YouTube playlist. Yep, there are, I was at 34 videos up there now. Uh, so that's a rainy weekend. All those talks you missed and you said you would catch up on, uh, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have some uh, repeat reminders that we did from previous episode uh, because we still want to mention it because we find it interesting for people who go to for the first one is the nice bug uh, install fest on november 6th at 18:45 at suspenders uh, go there if you've never used bsds before or if you want to help out installing your favorite bsd uh, that is the place to go or to be of course and yeah there will be people there who have never done this before who are struggling a little bit or need a little bit of help and this is exactly what install fests are for and then this way you can grow the community or talk about your favorite operating system in the BSD space and yeah you never know what comes up maybe someone uh, is sitting there who will be the next kernel developer or yep. user who is happy <laughs> and if that isn't enough to interest you the SDF will be sending their traveling AT&T 605 Unix terminal 
out uh, to Nicebug for that meetup. Uh, so if you do show up, they'll you'll be able to play with the AT&T 605 Unix terminal, uh, and also they'll have a bunch of SDF swag to give away. So if you want to play with that, uh, along with uh, helping out or participating in the install fest, just yet another reason uh, to come hang out. Um, you know, even if you're not interested in an install fest, show up to the meeting. There's always other stuff going on and lots of interesting conversations. And thanks for the nice bug folks who organized this to make that happen. We can't have enough install fests. Uh, the next thing is the FreeBSD MiniConf that we want to remind you about at linuxconf.au. Uh, for the 2020 call for sessions, this is now open and you should definitely submit something because they have a BSD MiniConf there or is it a FreeBSD MiniConf or a BSD MiniConf? I think it's a FreeBSD one. Yes, it's a FreeBSD MiniConf in conjunction with Simpro Software, who's uh, based in Australia. Yeah. So yes, uh, Linux.conf.au 2020 will have a FreeBSD MiniConf uh, early on, and they're looking uh, for submissions, which need to be in by November 17th. Uh, they also have a list of suggestions. So if you're not sure what to talk about, here's a list. Uh, for example... I personally will not be able to go, so someone needs to give a talk about ZFS. Um, but they also would like uh, talks about FreeBSD history or contributing documentation or ports and packages or an introduction to DTrace or how to do containers on FreeBSD or you know how to use FreeBSD if you're a Linux sysadmin. You know, that's not one I would be good at giving. But if you're a FreeBSD newbie who just came from Linux, you're probably the perfect person to help other people making the same transition uh, by giving that talk. Yeah, subject matter expert. You can definitely be helpful for people not to uh, fall into the same pitfalls that you might have encountered or just give a couple of tips how to make the journey a bit uh, interesting or less uh, fraught with peril. Um. <laughs> yeah, so check out the link if you're interested uh, and make sure you get your stuff in in time. But yes, big thing. If you have your own idea, submit it. Great. If you don't, here's a list so you have no excuse. So get on it. Yeah, there's no there's no hiding anymore. Um, similar to uh, what Fosdem does, for a number of years they have these dev rooms and there's a BSD dev room that has been running for quite a couple of years and the next one in 2020 is also announced already and this is on the Sunday next year. Uh, this is the second day of Fosdem. This is over the weekend and the submission deadline for that is the 24th of November 2019 but don't wait until that time. You want to have those submissions early uh, to fill the room. Yes, uh, we need them in as early as possible because we need to be able to show that we're going to have enough talks to get our provisional allocation of uh, an entire after day, a whole day rather than just an afternoon or a morning. Uh, whether you're a user and have some real-world examples to presentations about a new and shiny features that you have been developing or are about to, uh, giving some status update maybe, this is something, exactly the thing for the uh, dev room. Uh, also, community discussions or presentations of uh, interesting kinds for the BSD folks uh, gathered there, and there will be plenty of people gathered there. I can tell you uh, from previous experiences. It's always nice to see people there, and uh, you never know what people are coming up with at the BSDs. Yep. And lastly, uh, the University of Cambridge in the UK is currently looking for research assistants and research associates uh, for working on their new Cherry OS, uh, which is a hardware-enforced security uh, based on FreeBSD. So uh, they're looking for people for the Cherry compiler and Cherry OS support teams. Uh, and anybody with past experience with FreeBSD or client LLVM will be uh, a leg up on everybody else. So since that describes most of our audience... Uh, you should uh, check out the link, and if you're interested, uh, you could start working on research based on FreeBSD. Oh yes, very exciting. All right, it's time for feedback and questions in this week's episode. Uh, before we go into it, we ask you to send us more feedback and questions for this segment of the show. Uh, this should go to feedback at bsdnow.tv because otherwise this will be a very empty section and we kind of stare into the void and don't know what to talk about. Yes, and yeah, we, we don't know what you find interesting and what you find boring. So if you tell us, then we can make the show better for you. Uh, so Trenton, our interview partner from last week's episode, which you hopefully enjoyed, uh, has sent us a, an update to our ever uh, ongoing 
questions or quest, let's say, about the beeping ThinkPads when they suspend or come back from suspend. Uh, Trenton writes, uh, hello, greetings from Norway. Thank you, Trenton, again for that interview. Um, hope you both had a good time at EuroBeastCon. We certainly did. Definitely. I got to talk a little to Alan, but didn't get a chance to say hi to you, Benedict. That's no problem. We did that last week, uh, <laughs> live here on the show. Uh, we'll try to catch you next time. We did. That's a check mark. Okay, so then, anyway, in episode 316, Mason was talking about the beeping on his ThinkPad. The way to change the bell tone is to use KBD control with the dash B flag, lowercase b, uh, it seems, however, that VT only works with the visual bell. There's an open bug report uh, that he sends the link to us to as well. Uh, so for his own T420, uh, he set the key bell in rc.conf to quiet.visual to disable the bell. And surprise, when he resumes the notebook, uh, you still have to do the other changes for X, though. Yeah, so there's a thing to do that in X versus to do it on the command line. Yes, so apparently this rc.conf setting will help uh, with suspend and resume, but you still need to do the other thing to make it so that you know every time you press backspace at the blank prompt or whatever in X, that it isn't going to also go beep loud beeping at you. Yeah. Okay, so that's part of the way to solve that. Yeah, but that's that's definitely the main one is just unsuspend, uh, unresuming my laptop. I resume it, and just as I'm about to do something, it's just this loud beeping noise, and I jump out of my skin. <laughs> it's like, I came down here to use the exercise bike to get my heart rate up, but not in that fashion. <laughs> <laughs> not, not heart attack-like, yeah. Exactly. This shouldn't be that loud, yeah. So if you still have something in that area, or maybe have the solution, then definitely don't hide that. Other people are in dire need of that as well. Um, I might be in that group as well, now that I have a ThinkPad X1 Carbon, 6th generation. Ooh. Ooh. Um, still haven't set it up yet, but that's uh, just a couple days of setup for me. Well, probably not days, uh, but <laughs> it's coming. So I will be in the beeping ThinkPad area as well. So by that, you should have a solution for us. Uh, anyway, so thanks, Trenton, again. And uh, that is his question or his solution. Uh, next is Alex uh, with a peer user ZFS datasets question. Is there a way to configure FreeBSD so that when you create a user, it creates their home directory at a separate ZFS dataset? Goal is each user's home is separately snapshotable and each user can ZFS send and receive their own home directory. Okay, uh, so there's a couple different bits there. Um, the first one is, how are you adding the user? Um, so I once wrote a patch uh, to, to the add user command to optionally automatically create a ZFS dataset for each user. Uh, but then the initial question, or the immediate question for people then was, shouldn't it remove their directory when you remove the user? And I thought, yes. Uh, but then when the bit of code I was looking at that would figure out the data set and remove it, um, if, they didn't, if the user you were removing didn't have their own data set, the way ZFS worked, it would actually find, oh, you want me to remove the data set that contains this directory you just told me about. Uh, which, if it's not a separate data set, will be the entire user home, which is probably not what you wanted. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> nope. So it got stalled out there. But I think we can get away with just adding and leaving cleanup for after, because that's fine. And so in that case, someone could definitely revive my patch and improve it a little bit uh, to detect ZFS better. Uh, a bunch of that code has already uh, been done recently for FreeBSD update is growing support for detecting if you have ZFS and boot environments and automatically creating a boot environment before you start the update process. That's actually due to discussions that happened at VBSDCon. And so automatically creating the home directories, uh, probably uh, pretty doable. Like, uh, yes, that's very doable. Then for each user to be able to do their own send receives and snapshots, you'd also have to do the ZFS allow commands to say, you know, this user is allowed to do that directory and that user is allowed to do this other directory. I didn't ever prototype that, but it's, it's probably easy enough to do. Then the question becomes, you know, do you actually want to do it in the add user script? Or does it maybe make more sense to try to do it at like the PW command level? The add user command is actually a shell script that then calls PW, which is the C utility. And, uh, Maybe it makes more sense to do it 
at the lower level with the PW command because then it gets done also for users created by other scripts and other ways, although not necessarily for every single user, depending how they get added. In particular, I'm not sure what happens when ports create a user. But at the same time, you have the question of when ports create a user, they often have a, a home directory of like slash non-existent or you know var empty or some other place that's not necessarily a home directory. Uh, and you don't necessarily want to also create a data set when it's that. And so maybe it needs filter to only do it for things that are user home username or whatever. Yeah, so that opens a couple more questions for user management or home directory management in general, Yes, uh, how that should be done. But yes, I, I agree that having separate data set for every user at least, uh, then when you take one recursive snapshot of everything, you can at least, uh, when you're getting rid of user B, you don't have to destroy the snapshot for user A as well, uh, which is why at my video streaming company, we transitioned to having a separate data set for every customer because when we had one big data set and all the customers have a subdirectory in it, it meant that when we wanted to get back the space used up by you know customer B that canceled their account, uh, we also had to destroy the snapshots of customer A's stuff because it was all just of the base file system. So there's not a way to configure it yet, and it wouldn't be that hard, but I basically started thinking about all the cases and got a little demotivated on it just because it was going to be more work than I thought. Uh, but I think we can get something that works well enough for you know 95% of the use cases uh, without having to go too far into the weeds. Yeah, and we could look at uh, ZFS distributions who've done that for a while, like Illumos or the even the Solaris. I don't know if Illumos does that or not. They don't? Huh. I have no idea. They probably stumbled upon the same problems. Uh, uh, well, and Solaris probably has a a slightly more centralized way of dealing with creating users and stuff. Probably. So yes, if somebody wants to find and revive my old patch for this and uh, fix it up, I'd be very happy. All it requires is knowing a couple ZFS commands and very, very basic shell scripting. So it's a great beginner project. Yeah, for the ju a junior task. Um, and it's not that this feature is like needed tomorrow, and you can spend some time on that, thinking about all the different scenarios, but definitely welcome to in the community when it's available. And uh, ZFS send and receive stuff, you could set with uh, ZFS allow and um, give the users the permissions they require. There, this, this kind of thing is documented in the ZFS books. Uh, they have that um, available as a kind of a permission set already that you need. Okay, so thanks, Alex, for that question and the feedback, of course, about the show. And... Uh, Javier, I think, uh, is the name, uh, about FreeBSD 12.0, uh, plus ZFS, plus encryption. Yes, we get that a lot. Uh, we want to hear more. Hello, Alan, Benedict. I'm a FreeBSD user since late 90s. Oh, wow. I worked as a sysadmin for a dot-com company in Latin America in the middle of the crash then. A couple of years later, I started working as a consultant for a big IT Accenture, uh, noting related with the BSD world, or nothing related with the BSD world, the years passed by and I left the IT world to take care of the family business, a small shop in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The ERP billing and reporting software required Microsoft SQL Server, so up until recently I was unable to run anything but a Windows machine. Last year I decided to give Microsoft the SQL Server for Linux a try and ditch the old Windows 2008 R2 a server that I was using. So bought a small server, a Dell uh, T130 64 gig RAM with two times two terabyte HDD drives, plus an SSD drive uh, I had lying around or I had spare. Uh, I didn't want to install Linux on the server, so in the end, after trying FreeBSD 11.x release, I installed 12.0 and decided to run the database server inside a Beehive VM. During the install, I chose ZFS as a default file system for everything. Now the question. Is there a way to enable encryption for everything on a system already running ZFS? Really depends. So there's two types of encryption for ZFS. The first one is where you use Geli full disk encryption on the whole hard drives, uh, and that's FreeBSD specific. And that one, if you have uh, multiple redundant disks or whatever in your setup, like let's say you have two two different hard drives that you've set up as a mirror, then you could detach, or well, uh, offline one of the two drives, reformat it so and set it up with Geli so it's encrypted, and then uh, let that resilver and then do the other one, and so on, and then have the whole disk be encrypted that way. Uh, and then ZFS is on top of that, and that works. Uh, or 
in a future version of FreeBSD, once it gets integrated, then the ZFS native encryption stuff will exist, uh, which basically you would have to make a new data set, set it up with encryption, and then send receive all your existing data into it. So then it'll be encrypted as it's received. Uh, and then all new rights to it will be encrypted. And the advantage to that one is it doesn't encrypt everything in just the data set you decide to encrypt. Okay, then there's follow-up questions. Uh, is there a way to shrink the file system and then use Gally on that free space with ZFS? I guess you answered it a little bit already. Uh, so shrinking the file system, not really. But if your disks were mirrored, then you could do one leg of the mirror and then let it resilver and get it back and then do the other leg. And uh, if it's not possible to encrypt everything, what's the recommended practice if there's any to at least encrypt the VHD file that the Beehive is using? So yeah, do, does, is the VHD file just on a ZFS dataset or is it on a ZVOL? If it's on a ZVOL, you could run Geli on top of that ZVOL and then in your Beehive command, tell it to use the Geli version of the ZVOL. Um, and then it would be encrypted on the host before written to the disks. Yeah, that would work. And then you'd have to enter the password to mount the VHD file every time you tried to, after, after every reboot, basically, which is the one downside to it. Mm. Uh, but basically, if it's encrypted, you're going to need to do that. Su supply this key somehow every time you reboot anyway. So uh, so yes, for your existing system, uh, you're probably your easiest way would be, if you only really care about the VM, uh, is create a new ZVOL, set up Geli on top of that, and then have... Um, Beehive use the Geli device uh, of that Zvol, and then you can uh, also you could uh, DD the the VHD file or whatever into that Zvol that way as well. Yeah, that would work. Yeah. Uh, well, I think so because it's a VHD file, you'd probably have to use either the VirtualBox convert command or the QMU image command to convert from VHD to a raw disk image. Uh, but then, yeah, then you could write it to the Geli encrypted disk, and it would be encrypted, and then you could boot the Beehive from it. Mm. And that that way you could do it in place without having to uh, reformat anything. Yeah, setting it all up again. It's kind of bad to uh, think about, oh, I should have encrypted that, but now that you have it, uh, there are ways to slowly move it to uh, an encrypted system. Okay, uh, hopefully that gave you some pointers and ideas. And uh, that pretty much wraps up this week's episode. Uh, thanks for listening, as always. If you have future uh, content for us that you are uh, dying to see uh, or listen to, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and it has a good chance of appearing in future episode. Thank you. Thank you.